What a fortnight it was at Flushing Meadows. With controversy surrounding the tournament for months before it began, the US Open will leave a long-lasting legacy. First for the women's final between Naomi Osaka and Victoria Azarenka, where the Japanese superstar came back from a set and a breakdown to win her third major title in two years. And finally, the men's final. Dominic team somehow coming back from two sets to love down against Alexander Zverev to finally break the barrier for the 1990s babies and win the first slam by a player born in that decade. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo. What a couple of weeks it was at Flushing Meadows. We're going to review all of that on today's show. Craig O'Shaughnessy, leading tennis analyst, is going to join us, as is Jed Zetter from the first serve. It's going to be a brilliant show, but it wouldn't be brilliant without this man. Joel Frucci joins me on the other line. How are you? Yeah, going well, Val. Could say the same about yourself. And uh, yeah, I mean, you said it well. Uh, who would have thought that this US Open would uh, leave, in my opinion, an overwhelmingly positive legacy? Because we were talking so much about all the problems that we envisaged. And in the end, the only positive COVID-19 case was Ben Pair, And the tournament uh, went ahead rather seamlessly. And in the end, we got uh, a whole lot of storylines. Of course, there was uh, all the... Uh, the stuff around Novak Djokovic, which I don't think anyone was uh, was expecting, let's be honest. But then we got two uh, finals uh, absolutely befitting of the occasion. And I'm sure we'll talk about the men's final uh, very uh, soon. But, um, yeah, I mean, that started off being uh, a match that looked like it was just going to absolutely flake. We had, we had finally uh, the platform for a new champion, a new men's champion, new men's Grand Slam champion, we were so excited, and then those first two sets were just quite poor. I mean, let's be real. Dominic team. It wasn't um, poor. Well, it was good that, quality from Zverev. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, not to say that Dominic team didn't turn up, but God, he was nervous, and he yep. admitted that. Um, but he found a way back in, and then the tide turned, and then Alex Zverev got nervous, and, uh, and in the end, Dominic... Uh, was uh, the one able to, to hold his nerve. Well, team able to get through that 2-6-4-6-6-4-6-3-7-6-8-6 in the fifth. But it was a match of seesaws, as you said. Zverev winning the first two sets, being up a break in the third. Team coming back, winning the third. The fourth was pretty comfortable for team. He then gets up a break with the first game in the fifth. Zverev breaks back, gets it to 5-3, serves for the match, can't hold it. Team gets it to 6-5, serves for the match, can't hold it. They get to the tiebreak. Zverev goes up a mini break. Team gets that back, gets to 6-4, misses two forehands. Zverev gets it to 6-all somehow, and then team wins at 8-6 with the final two points of the match. It was a super tight fifth set. Both players absolutely nervous, mm. which you can't blame them for. And and I guess this might be why that the big three have dominated for so long, because players just do get that nervous in Grand Slam finals. And because they've been there and done that so many times... It gets difficult, and it's 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 really funny. But yeah, I think looking at what they've been able to do is 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 so stunning. But I think it was great for team and great for his belief that he's going to be able to get through and um and now go to other Grand Slams as a major champion. And I think that does help him in terms of confidence. I'm not sure what it's going to do for Roland Garros. He'd be pretty cooked. But um yeah, it was it, it was a fantastic match, and and I think. For what it lacked in certain areas of uh, composure, I think it, it made up for in drama and sheer theatre quality because it was just, it was it, it was unscripted. That's what live sport is, and that's why sport is the best reality TV because there are, there are no scripts and you never know what's going to happen. But um, yeah, the match. I think for me, Joel, the match turned when Team broke Zverev at five two down in the second set in that eighth game. He got the break. Zverev hadn't even faced a break point before that moment. Team broke back, got it to five all. Zverev did hold that set, but how shaky did he look? The double faults and the nerves on serve just started to creep in a little bit, and then that was enough for Team to say, okay, I'm on here. Yeah, well, I mean, I at that point, I thought when Alex Zverev closed out that second set, I thought that was going to be enough for him. Um Obviously, not in the sense that uh, you know he was just going to go on and win the match because obviously we know, and this was as good a case as any, that tennis is not over until it's over. If ever there's a sport, but that's the case, it's tennis. But um, I, I thought the fact that, yes, he because he did have uh, those shaky moments in that set, the fact that he was able to go on and actually close out that set, I thought was a, a really big thing for him. So I, I, I thought that once 
he won that set that maybe uh, his nerves would have settled a bit and he would have gone on um, and just, just marched ahead with it. But, um, yeah, I mean, anyone that's played tennis at any level, um, you know, myself, whether it's, you know, Saturday morning juniors or, yeah. you know, Tuesday night pub pub comp, um, you know, um, closing out matches is, is not easy. So I, I can't imagine how hard it must be to do that um, when you're going for your first ever Grand Slam uh, title, even even with no fans. So, look, I think the next the next big thing for, for Alex Verev, and we'll hear what both players have to say in a minute, um, but, look, Alex believes that, that he will win a slam uh, yeah. eventually. He'll get another chance, and look, so do I. But I think just the big thing with Alex is that, uh, obviously, he needs to just work on those nerves, yeah. um, work on keeping calm. I'm sure David Ferrer will be will be great for that. He's obviously a very experienced campaigner, but just being able to use his serve and get those three points when he needs to, when he is nervous and and uh, and settle himself down, that's going to be the next big thing. And maybe we'll even ask Craig that later um, when we when we speak to him exactly how he can do that. Exactly right, and I think um, the serve for Alexander Zverev was the big problem throughout the entire tournament. Second serve points one, I think, was averaging her in the 40, 40s in percentage for the entire tournament. It's very hard to win a Grand Slam when you're doing that. And in the final, it was down at, I think, 42% in winning your second serves. And team was at about 48. So it wasn't really, um, there wasn't really much separating the two. Both were extremely nervous. But what, he was hitting something along the lines of 60 mile an hour second serves that's only about 130 yeah, kilometers or 100 that's not enough something like that that's it's so slow but the problem was team was standing so far back and couldn't get any purchase on them he got the ball in but then Zverev would get onto the forehand and he attacked team's backhand so well came into the net beautifully took the game away from team's backhand and towards the end, team could only slice. He couldn't generate any power. It was mainly because of cramps as well. And he said he hadn't cramped up like that in so long. So it was just, it was so enthralling in so many ways. But um, I, I'm very happy for Dominic team. It was four times the charm. He said if he had have lost again, he would have had to ring Andy Murray for some tips on, on how to actually crack <laughs> through in a slam final. It took Murray till his fifth attempt to do it. But team was slowly progressing better. Three sets, four sets, five sets, and now a win. So it's um it's amazing for him, and I think his game style definitely deserves a slam with the way that he plays. And Joel, you wrote a, a great piece in in the tennis menu, the tennismenu.com, who we're, we're associated with. You can um you can look them up. Absolutely fantastic packages there. But Joel, you wrote a piece saying that the the long lasting legacy of this U.S. Open will be a positive one, and I think for stories like that, for Zverev, for Team, Publicot, and your booster as well. Um, and then we'll talk about the women's in a sec. But I think that the way this tournament was played by the men and the opportunity that they had and to be able to capitalise finally on that opportunity um, for one of them was, was absolutely phenomenal. So well done to Dominic Team on his um, on his win and hopefully we'll see many, many more and watch out for him at the French. But he might be cooked, so who knows. But we'll move. Uh, here's what the, the finalists had to say um, after the match and um, in, in their press conferences and... One was obviously very flat and one was obviously very happy. For me, what upset me the most, I think, is not the, the third set or something like that. It's the fifth set. Um, I had a lot of chances in the fifth set. Uh, didn't use them. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm 23 years old. I don't think it's my last chance. Um, and I do believe that I will be a Grand Slam champion at some point. I wanted this title uh, so much and of course there was also in my head that if I lose this one it's 0-4, there's always in your head, is this chance ever coming back again, this and that, all these uh, thoughts which are not great to, to play your best tennis and to play free and that's what exactly happened uh, in the beginning and uh, luckily then things changed in the third set and at the end it was complete open match 50-50 so I think the experience didn't mean that much today. Alexander Zverev and Dominic team there it was um it was a heartbreaking final scene Zverev's speech at the end wasn't it Joel? <laughs> yeah well you couldn't help but uh but, but feel the emotion um but look again as we said and as 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 Alex said he'll be there again um it's it's just a matter of, of him tidying up those um those Things that we know he has to fix the the serve and uh, and the nerves because uh, everything else I mean really he's got he's got down pat and the most important thing is that he has that belief as well so yeah he, he can do it he'll be back and uh, yeah anyway 
Let's talk women's, I reckon. Yep, I reckon. And what a, what a what a tournament it was. It was becoming the tournament of the mums with Peronkova, Williams, and uh, and who was the and Azarenka? How did I forget that? Um, she made it. All three of them made it through to the quarterfinals, and two of them in the semis with that epic between Azarenka and Serena, one six six three six three to the Belarusian, and uh, coincidentally the exact same scoreline as what it was in the finals. So one day it was Azarenka's favourite scoreline, and the next day. It's probably or two days later. It's something that she'll want to forget about with um with the same scoreline against mm. Osaka, but unfortunately she wasn't on the right side of that. It was a great match for Osaka coming back from six one two love down as Arenka serving and almost having and having a point to go up three love in that second set. That almost would have been it. Um, so a, a testament to her character to come back and all three of her Grand Slam finals now have been under adverse pressure. And what she's had to do, like against Serena in 2018, Serena's famous outburst now um, against Carlos yeah. Ramos, she ends up winning in straight sets. Last year against Petra Kvitova in the Australian Open final, she was cooked after that second set, almost in tears and like she'd withdrawn from the match. Somehow got through and won, and then this one being a set down and a breakdown and coming back and winning. She's undefeated in slam finals, and she's got three before she's 23. Yeah, and look, I think what these finals tell us about Naomi is more about who she is as I think as a person than than as a as a tennis player. She's so she's so strong and resilient, Val. I think, um, yeah. and obviously we saw that we saw that as well with not only her conduct on the court and the way she played, and of course even in this tournament from start to finish, she battled that hamstring injury. Didn't yeah. really look hampered by it at all. Maybe if we're looking at a Premier event instead of a Grand Slam. She doesn't get through, um, but the reality is she got through it. Um, you know, there was, she pulled out of the Cincinnati final, finally enough against yeah. Vika as well, and she got through the US Open and she won it. Um, and then obviously um, she, you know, used her platform, wore the, the masks of uh, the, uh, the the victims of um, of police brutal- brutality in in, yeah. uh, in the US, people of, of color, which which was great. And she started a, a lot of conversations and. Um, yeah, the fact that you know she's she's won her finals, as you said, with that um, with that sort of knock against uh, Kvitova and an equally powerful player, really, um, with the crowd against her, um, a, against Serena, and then now with uh, with no fans in the most probably the most unique Grand Slam we're ever mm-hmm. likely to see um, in our lifetime, and uh, I think we could see as well just whenever Naomi spoke to the press, whether it was her on-court interviews, which I know we're not necessarily fans of, just as a concept, but um, whenever she gave interviews, whenever she did her, her press conferences, uh, you could tell that she's really come out of her shell and mm. not to say that she was a bad speaker to begin with, but she was just quite quite shy. But we can see now that she's really, I think, embracing the limelight, embracing where she is in her career. She's a genuine superstar now, and it's great to see just how far She's come since, uh, since she won that first uh, first slam title. Yeah, exactly right. Remember her speech at the end of that first slam? Hi, I'm Naomi. We all know who you are now. And <laughs> I think it was absolutely brilliant. And when they had the fan cam for a fan to ask her a question at the end of the match, that fan was her mum during one of the rounds. And um, she's like, oh, my God, mum, what are you doing here? And she's like, I'll, I'll call you later. Um, it's, it was, it was, was it was hilarious. Um, but here's what the two finalists had to say. Um, we'll get to Azarenka after, after this and yeah, here's what, uh, her and Osaka had to say after the match. Yeah. 
Slashed and torn. Naomi Osaka and Victoria Azarenka there. Unbelievable final it was, and what a tournament it was from Vika, Joel. She rallied back, won the Cincinnati slash New York before the tournament, um, as you said, against Osaka, um, who pulled out of that final before the uh, ball was even hit. But um, we finally got the match, and it didn't really... It, it, well, it did live up, sorry, to expectations, and I think the way Azarenka played throughout this tournament, that comeback against Serena was simply just scintillating in the way that she managed to figure her way through that match, and and get out of it so it, it was just absolutely brilliant and um i'm sure we both wish her um all the best for the rest of the season she's such a likable character isn't she yeah no she she really is and it was just great to see uh vintage vika on, on yep. the court she was she was so powerful and uh obviously in, in the past she has had some issues playing against uh against serena um but this time around she got the job done and even in that in that uh, semi-final she started off very poorly, a lot of uh, a lot of unforced errors, and, and Serena was almost looking, <laughs> in some respects, home and hose. But uh, she found a way uh, to get back into it. She's up to uh, number thirteen in the world now, which is uh, her best since November twenty sixteen. So yeah. that's great to see. Funnily enough, though, I actually I thought that uh, I mean, my in terms of the, the the motherhood narrative, my probably my favorite story from the U.S. Open was probably Zvetana Peronka, but mainly because. She was the, I, th I think anyway, the lower key uh, returnee in yeah. that in that bracket of, um, of course, Serena never went never went anywhere, but uh, Vika was back in the mix. Vera is one of Vera is one of as well. And Kim Clasters, Zatanna. We didn't really, yeah. I mean, we we didn't really hear a lot about her, and you know, she just casually just comes back in and makes a quarterfinal and, and she's got a wild card into the into the French Open now as well. So that was, I think, a great story. Yeah, it's fantastic. And to see her get through to the quarters and take a set off Serena and be so close to getting through to a semifinal. Remember, she has she is a Wimbledon semifinalist, so she has been there and done that yeah. at a slam before and we gone deep. So we know she's got the capabilities and she's 
been close to the top 10 in the world. So she's um, she's an absolute superstar. And if we see her playing her best tennis, then it's going to be very hard to beat her. So fingers crossed we can see her play some really good tennis for the rest of the year. The one other player I want to talk to you about, Joel, is Jennifer Brady. She got through to the quarter semifinals as well. Her first maiden or her maiden run to the final four at a slam. She beat some big players along the way. She smashed Angie Kerber in the fourth round. She looked really ominous ominous in that semifinal as well against Osaka. She was hitting the ball unbelievably well. And before we do get to Craig O'Shaughnessy, just your quick assessment on her. Uh, yeah, really good, really good. I think the great thing about Jennifer Brady, and I, I did put this in that in that piece I wrote on, on the, the tennismenu.com as well, was that I think her journey this year really, I think, gives everyone a bit of a glimmer of hope that we can resurrect something from from this year. Obviously, it's been a really tough year for a lot of people, but um, you know, Jennifer Brady is living proof that we we can get something out of uh, out of out of the ruins, I suppose, because she's had a great year on on tour. Obviously, won uh, won the uh, won Lexington and then backs it up um, with uh, with what she achieved. Uh, at the US Open, and I, th- I think during the tournament, I think she hit two, or since uh, tennis has come back, she's uh, hit two uh, career high rankings. So now, look, it's it's uh, it's it's terrific. It's a really good story. Amazing to see, and I think and I think we're going to see her win a Grand Slam in the very very near future. But Joel, it's time for our first guest, and he joins us now from Austin, Texas. He's one of the best analysts in the world, and if he doesn't know this about tennis, it is. It's really not worth knowing. The guy is just an absolute genius, and I had the pleasure of sitting <laughs> sitting next to or a few seats down from Craig at the um, at the Australian Open a couple of years ago at the Media Workroom, and he is lots of fun. Craig O'Shaughnessy, thank you so much for joining us here on Breakpoint Podcast. Well, and Joel, it's a pleasure. Um, gorgeous weather here in Austin at the moment. Hopefully, Melbourne has some of the same. It does. It's beautiful. Not a cloud in the sky today, but unfortunately, we can't really enjoy much of it for more than an hour and a half, two hours a day with our lockdown. So, um, yeah, a bit of a moot point, kind of. But um, how, how are you going with everything in COVID in uh, in Austin, Texas? Um, you know, my business is, is swung online. You know, I'm still uh, doing a lot of work on my website. I'm still writing stories for the ATP. Um, now the tour is back. I'm still doing remote uh, coaching, remote game plans, remote strategy. So, um, you know, th- this is my office. This is where I spend a lot of time during the day. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate to have those other avenues and not just be on court, which I have been a lot, um, you know, during my life in tennis, but uh, n- not so much anymore. So it, it's good to be able to still um, earn a living right here at this computer. Yeah, unprecedented times. And that website you speak of is Brain Game Tennis. So please check it out. It is unbelievable. Some of the strategies and the people that you've worked with over your career, Craig. And just tell us for the people that um, haven't heard your name before. I'm sure they have. But uh, what what exactly do you do? And um, what, what's the insight into your role as, as an analyst and strategist? Listen, it's really simple. You know, people say, Craig, you know, I, I get introduced a lot. It's like, Craig, you, you're the stats guy. Um and I go, hang on a second. I'm not the stats guy. You know, I stats are not my forte. Math, you know, all of that side of it, it isn't my forte. I'm the other side. I have a journalism degree. You know, my first job out of high school, I worked at a newspaper. Um, but tennis has always been a passion. And, you know, when I started looking at players, whether it was juniors, whether it was people on the professional tour and, and wanted to help them, it's like, you know, there's a lot of if you take a pie and you start slicing it up, you know you want your player to be fitter. You want them to eat well. You want them to have great technique. You want them to have amazing agility around the court. You want them to win more matches. So as I'm looking at all these pieces of the pie and going, you know, which ones matter more? Um, strategy was was so evident that if you could figure out the opponent on the other side of the court, if you knew you know, the underlying fundamentals of our sport, you had a big advantage. So I, I used video analysis, I videoed matches or I recorded matches and, and then kind of figured out from doing it for a number of years, looking at the same points again and again and again, the same players and why are they winning? And, um, you know, I went down the road of, 
of understanding strategy. You know, it looks like a game of pinball when essentially it's a game of repeatable patterns. You know, you've got serving, returning, rallying and approaching. And within those four areas, there's high percentage patterns and there's low percentage patterns. There's, you know, should a you know, ball comes down the middle of the court, should you hit a forehand or a backhand? Should you go cross court or down the line? Should you approach the forehand or backhand? You know, a lot of times in a match, a player has two options. Do I do that or do I do that? And if they're really lucky, they'll have three. You know, maybe there's a drop shot I can do right now. So I spent a lot of time um, with software called Dartfish that enabled me to tag matches. So, you know, as a younger coach and as a player, you know, we'd look at a match chronologically from start to finish, which is one of the worst ways to look at a match. You know, with, with Dartfish, I was able to tag it and then at the end of the match, I said, all I want to see is backhand errors. How many did my player have? And all of a sudden, you see there's 27. So you click the 27, you watch one after the other after the other. And you see that probably 22 of them are, are identical. You know, it's a, they're getting pushed wide. They're slightly on defense. They don't want to go cross court. They're bailing out down the line and they're missing. It's like, you know, if you learn how to play defense on that shot and understand that it does need to go cross court, you can get rid of the majority of those errors and become a lot better player. So um, it's through video and through the analysis of matches. And it's, it's, it's literally something that you, you watch points thousands of times, you know, very similar points, you know, they, they all play out the same. And after watching it thousands of times, you have a deeper appreciation of, of the subtleties and the movement and the balance and it is a player going here. And, you know, you can you can shut down a part of the court by just moving the shoulders rather than recovering all the way back to the other side. So that's essentially what I do. And um, I deliver that, that strategy work um, as courses on my website. So uh, there's 10 courses on there that are singles, doubles, and, and the mental and emotional side of the game. I deliver it to players pre-match and post-match. Um, you know, the, this week is uh, in Rome and I'm working with players there and sending through game plans and doing reviews. This is what you did well at the US Open. This is what needs to improve. Um, and, and, and certainly with an eye looking forward to, uh, to Roland Garros, which is an, an amazing tournament. So sorry I'm not there this year, but it is what it is. Mm. We did have, uh, of course, a brilliant US Open men's final, Craig, Dominic Team and, and Alex Verev. And I'll tell I you what, it looked it. like... Uh, Great. Looked like it, it might looked like it might not have been the most memorable final to begin with, but uh, certainly in the end, I mean, it was I, I think, and I'm sure Bell thinks as well, just the one of the more memorable, engrossing finals in recent memory that we've seen. And Alex started off like a house on fire. Dominic Team admittedly started off in very nervous fashion, but he managed to turn it around. And I know you've written about this for uh, for the ATP. Just how did Dominic Team go about turning this match around? When you go back, I think it was 2016 when um, Warinka played Djokovic, and I, I'm at that match. You know, I mean, I'm a low, low down, pretty close to the court, good press seats, and it's early on. And I, I look at, at uh, maybe in the first or second game, maybe second game, and Warinka's returning a second serve, and he is, he's, you know, he is right back. He is right next to a linesman. And Djokovic is rolling this serve. It's like 82 miles an hour, really slow. And I, and I take a picture of it and put it on Twitter. I'm like, what in the world is Wawrinka standing at the back fence to return an 82-mile-an-hour serve? It makes no sense. Wawrinka is slow. He comes back. He comes back. Djokovic goes nuts at his box. He's screaming. He's angry. He's mad. Wawrinka wins. It's not until the, pro, the post-match press conference where he said, Wawrinka goes in there and goes, guys, I, you know, I basically had a nervous breakdown before the match. I was shaking and I was in tears before the match. He goes, I can't explain why. It happened. And I was so tight. I couldn't hardly swing the racket. So when you get tight, time speeds up in, in a lot of ways with the ball. So the reason Wawrinka is moving back to, to receive an 82-mile-an-hour serve is that it probably feels like it's 130 to him because he just can't move his arms. But over time, he, he worked his way into it. And th there's, a, there's a very real element that, you know, I think Novak went up like 5-1 or 5-2, that 
I think the first set maybe was seven five. So Stan worked his way back, and it can be unnerving for opponents or, or for a player that's just getting it so easy when you have an opponent just they're very nervous or they're very off and everything's coming so easy and all of a sudden 30 minutes later it's not so easy and that can be very very unnerving so it, it was almost identical is that um dominic said the whole day he was super tight um and he started the match incredibly tight and we're watching him um you know swing the racket and we're used to him thumping that forehand and the ball just you know leaping off and it's doing nothing it's it's like crawling to the service line and then mm -hmm. what also happened was the press were really putting a big emphasis on if you lose this you're own four in finals like Andy Murray and maybe Ivan Wendell and that really got to him and it, and it also said that you know it's time that you win one so he felt the pressure and therefore Alexander Zverev reading the exact same press felt none and I remember in 2017, 2018, um, London Tour Finals when I was working with Novak and Novak had beaten Alex in Shanghai. He'd beaten him in the pretty bad. It got to like three all and, and, and Sasha had a break point, didn't break it, then won one more game. Then um, in the round robin stage in London, it, I think it was four all. And there was two break points, he didn't get them. And then Novak ran away with the match. Well, Alexander came out in that final just going for everything. He was averaging 138 miles an hour on a first serve. I think he made, you know, 22 of 24. He was just on fire. And that's how he needs to play. Yeah. He needs to play big boy tennis. Um, he's good at it. You know, he, you know, I made a joke with Kevin Anderson when I first started working. I go, Kevin, you know, you, 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 Kevin was playing so far back. I'm... I said, you know, you're six foot ten from South Africa. You play tennis like you're five foot ten from Bolivia, and and Alexander Zverev's the same thing. He's so tall and he's so good and athletic. But he, you know, I, I've got all these Hawkeye heat maps on him where he, he likes to step in on a backhand, but he steps back on a forehand to to get more time. It's just ridiculous. He he's, he he needs to come forward. He needs to, you know, just the fact that you want to step to a forehand. You're going to hit it better. You're going to get organized better with your hands and feet. So Alexander was incredible. Six two five one. Yeah, playing exactly the way he should play. Twenty four seven three sixty five. Dominic team was tighter than a drum. Um, you know, it could have it, it could have been six two six one, and then and then maybe a six one or six two in, in the third set. You know, it's but he let him back in. He saved some set points. Then he got broken. And even though it is, even though he lost the set, it is so much better to lose the set six four than to lose it six one. And that's when things started changing. I think I wrote where the winds started changing. Um, so yeah, it was fascinating. I, you know, we've been so privileged to watch Roger and Rafa just go into annihilation mode and, and take their level so high. And we're not used to two guys going out there that and missing balls and tied and wanting it so bad, so bad, and, and letting the fear and nerves take over and to go for a tiebreaker in the fifth. I mean, it was, it was amazing. I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, no, likewise. And I think I think David Ferrer in Alex Verov's camp, I think that's a really – I think he's a really good person to have, like from the outside looking in for, for Alex because obviously David was there for such a long time and – He's a grinder and he's he's really been around and he's only just out of the game. So do you think going forward that he's he's the right guy, Craig, to take Alex maybe to the next level? Yeah. I mean, I mean, everybody's got a world of respect for David Ferrer. Um, you know, he's got all the runs on the board that you need. He, he's a Hall of Fame player. He's, he, he's a great tennis mind, great tennis mind. Um, when David Ferrer speaks, you listen. You stop what you're doing and you look him in the eye and you listen. Um, I, I sincerely hope, and I'm sure he will, is that, you know, David's going to look and say, you know, he's not going to impose his game style onto Sasha. He's going to, he's going to impose his understanding of the game and say, you are, you're a North-South player. And that's, you know, David Frey was an East-West player. You know, Alexander Zero is North-South. And, and you take those, that skill set and, and you make it better and better. And, um, you know, we, we're probably already seeing it from, 
how well Sasha started in that final. I mean, you know, I don't know how much of that was David Ferrer, but, you know, I, I've, I've probably got a pretty good feeling there was a lot of it um, that was a direction. And I think it was the same in London where um, Ivan Wendell really, you know, Alexander Zverev was, he was too young to just come out guns firing when he just wasn't used to it. And it was almost like, you know, I, I kind of pitch it. I'm like, where did this come from? And I could almost, you know, picture Ivan Wendell, you know, just doing the normal practice during the day and doing everything normal. And then it gets about 10 minutes before the match and he kind of goes into the locker room and he kind of pushes Alexander up against the wall and holds him there and goes, you're going to attack today, aren't you, Alexander? And kind of grabs him and roughs him up a bit against the wall. It's like, it gets him, you know, it's like a grand final, you know, a little up there, Kazali going in the background and roughs him up a bit. You've got to go out there and just, you know, bite the head off a snake, aren't you? And, uh, and, and that's what he did. And he plays better when he's aggressive like that. Yeah, you're 100% right. Those first two sets were amazing. I remember back in the 2017 Rome final when he tore Novak a new one. He, he was just all over him that day. And then you look at his final in London. You look at when he won Shanghai last year. You know, he's been there and he can play well in the big matches. But it was just getting there for Zverev that's the tough part. And mentally, I think he had to really fight through his serve. And like averaging under 40% or under a 50% winning ratio on your second serve throughout an entire tournament it's not going to win you many, is it? And is that something that he has to change quickly or is it something he'll look at at the end of the season? Well, the double faults are ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, they're at a ridiculous level. Um, you know, the, the I, I think I wrote uh, team was averaging one out of 16 second serves was a double fault. Roger Federer, that's right where he's at, one out of 16. The men's tour are right around one out of 10. And the women's tour about one out of five. And Alexander Zverev is one out of five. Um, and it, it's way too many. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's motion, there's a lot going on in his motion. Essentially what's happening is, you, you know, when you throw the ball, you know, it goes up. You want to go at an angle up to it. You want to go into the court. What's happening with Alexander is everything's become too steep. Yeah. The toss goes straight up. He goes straight up. And, he's, and he almost is just cuffing the ball instead of it being out in front where he's hammering the ball. So his angle at the ball is too steep and therefore it becomes, is he getting any of the ball or, or then, you know, it's, it, it, if he doesn't get enough, it's just going to die in the net, you know, on, at five, six in the fifth set, you know, in, in, the, in the breaker, he says that 68 mile an hour second serve that makes it, I, I mean, I was, I'm like, please. Let's not end this on a double fault, please. Yeah. Yeah. Got over the net. I'm like, yes. I was, was so rooting for him to make that over the net. But it, you know, it's easy for us to outsiders to see the problem. It's difficult for him to fix it. You know, he's got he's got a little bit of the yips with that, and it, it must be fixed. You know, he doesn't want to go through a career and seasons with that, and um, it can be fixed. It's you know, yes, it's part mental, but yes, it's part physical. I, I see he's just. It's too straight up and down. His, his ball must land further in the court. He must go forward because um, he hits a great first serve and he can hit a great second serve. Um, he just doesn't believe in it. I think it's when it gets back is the problem. So I, I think David Freer will help him with that. Fingers crossed he can. And, and Craig, I want to ask you about the French Open coming up. We're obviously into the clay season now in Rome and it's happened pretty quickly in this calendar on steroids. But um, what are your thoughts heading into Roland Garros and who are the players that you think are going to be the ones to watch? Is it the ones that did well at the US Open or is it the ones that have taken some time off like Rafa and Gal Monfi and Stan who might just be it might just be running under the radar, but when the French rolls around, they're going to really succeed? Yeah. I, I, to answer that, a, a very quick story. So... It was like, I don't know, two, early 2011, something like that. Um, I was coaching uh, Kevin Anderson up in um, Canada, in Toronto, and he lost to Rafa in the third round. Um, and, and I just remember one of the interviews there um, where Rafa says, you know, they're asking Rafa, you know, I don't think you've won the U.S. Open yet. Um, you know, are you, you going to do okay? He's like, he's like I've, I, I, I've set... I've set my schedule, I've set my calendar, I've set my mind, I've set everything that I'm doing at the US Open. 
And so from that moment on, I met a guy the following night and we're talking and he's like, you know, exactly the same as you. He's like, who do you like for the US Open? I said, I'll take Rafa and I'll give you 127 other players. I don't want them. As soon as Rafa comes out and says, I'm setting myself for this tournament, I, that's good enough for me. So I think it, it, it's a very similar thing here where, where, where Rafa has set himself. He's gone to Rome. He's, you know, it's going to be a good warm-up tournament. Um, it's going to get the juices flowing. You know, all that hardcore stuff is gone. All those players have, you know, right now they're, they're still exhausted. They're mentally exhausted from mm. being in a bubble for, you know, for, since, for maybe a month. Yeah. I mean, just think what that's like. Just crazy. Then they've, they've played on quick hard courts in New York. They've had to deal with the bubble. They've had to deal with taking, you know, the, all the, the COVID tests. Um, you know, they, they, they need a vacation after that. And now they're going to go to Rome and Paris and wrap as fresh as a daisy. Um, you know, Marika lost today to Lorenzo Musetti, an Italian junior. It's very, very good. good. I saw him last year. He's good. Playing, um, yeah, I do a lot of work. I consult with the Italian Federation. So, um, I see these younger guys like Sinner coming up and Musetti coming up, and yeah, very, very good. And, and I work with Berrettini, so um, you know the Italians are doing an amazing job. You know, just as as a federation, how they're educating their coaches, how they're developing their talent. You know, they're, they're A plus. I put them number one in the world right now. The French have always been good, but putting people into the second week of the Grand Slam has been a little bit of a problem on the French side, um, typically. So. But, you know, their, their, their system and, and the amount of players they put into the first week um, is ridiculously good. So, you know, if we're talking Rome, we're talking Paris, we're talking Rafa. And, 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 then, and then you talk about who's he going to play in the final. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a lot of times That's it's true. interesting is that these players will be doing it. That You know, when the draw comes out, they will, they will literally be going, I hope I'm not, number one, I hope I'm not on Rafa's half, number one, and then I hope I'm far enough away from Novak and Rafa. So those guys will be on either the top yeah. and the bottom. So all these players, they're literally looking, I want to be around the middle, so at least I've got a chance to get further before I run into them. Obviously, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Val, um, Novak, geez, I mean, I think what we see with him, Craig, is what we get, and that's very much from an outside point of view, but like, just what is he like to work with? Because he's, he obviously has all those yeah. sort of little, little, uh, all those little things in place. Like we know about the, the gluten free stuff and, and, and all that, all that stuff that he's, that he's got going, but like, what is he like to work with? Amazing. Um, a, a very different private persona than the public one, <clears throat> or certainly maybe the match one where, you know, Hitting the the, the lady, <clears throat> excuse me, in the throat. Um, you know, of course, he should have got de defaulted from that. But you know, that's been coming for a while. There's been near misses. There was a near miss in, in the like three points earlier. We yep. slammed a ball into the you know the side fence. You know, Novak Novak's got a temper, and and you know the the good side of that is it fuels him and it drives him and it provides a bit of you know that inner rage that that he feeds off. But at times, you know, if, you know, if you're hitting a ball hard and or a racket comes out of the hand, Novak has had several near misses. Um, he's been lucky in the past, and it finally caught up with him. Um, so, so you know, people can very much get down on him and go, "Ah, oh, you know, we don't like Novak because of that." I get that. Um, working with him, ten out of ten. You know, he's. I, I, I said, and I said this time, I go, Novak. People ask me what it's like to work with you. And, and, and he goes, yeah, well, what do you tell them? I said, <laughs> I, I, said I give you the ultimate compliment, Novak. I go, I said, it's, good. it's like working with a 14-year-old boy. And, and he laughs, and, he, and, and I, I need to explain that to you, is that a 14-year-old boy is full of enthusiasm, and they're, and they're wide-eyed, and they want to learn. Their, their willingness to learn, um, they're a sponge. And I go, you're the exact same way. When we talk strategy, when we talk patterns, when we look at your matches, you're always asking questions. You're always seeking knowledge. You're always bouncing ideas. You're always trying to get better. Um, 
And, you know, there, there's no difference. Your, your thirst and hunger to improve is, it, it blows me away. And, you know, I, it, it, it inspires me and it drives me to provide even more and to dig even more, you know, knowing how much, you know, you want it and you want to improve. I mean, you know, he, he's, you know, consistently the world's best returner, but, you know, we have conversations about improving his return that is driven by him. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that, that's kind of the inner workings that, you know, you look at it and you say, okay, if, if you're, let's say you're eight in the world um, or 10, let's say you're David Goffin, um, you know, he's, he's around 10 in the world. And you say, okay, I've got to work. <clears throat> I want to climb up the rankings. There's nine other guys in front of me. And, you know, the old school kind of way of looking at it, which isn't wrong. Um, it says, okay, I, I got nine guys ahead of me. So in one way, I need to work harder than these nine guys. i got to outwork these nine guys. Well, good luck when it comes to outworking Novak Djokovic. Good luck with that. Good luck with the, the preparation, the two hours of stretching and plyometrics and the band work and the strength work. I remember when we went to Monte Carlo, um, his first practice in six months, he, he did two hours of band work. Like, I, I get there and we, we, you know, we're about an hour in and I'm like, this is he's way overdoing. I've never, you know, I've never seen somebody prepare for practice like this. We're two hours in, and I'm like, well, this is actually a good idea. We're not going to practice today because he's just got his body ready and got it. Then we go out and practice for two hours, and I'm like, I, I, I couldn't believe it. Now, two days in, he's got blisters everywhere, all over his hands and all over his feet. Yes, <laughs> he definitely overdid it, but you know, he, his his preparation is amazing, um, and you know the the, the the, the professional level off the court is is second to none. I've never seen, I've never firsthand seen anything um, that that rivals that. That's unbelievable. And yeah, looking looking at the way that he does play his tennis, the man is just human elastic. So I'm not surprised with all the stretching that he does, but two hours is just yeah. unbelievable. But Craig, you can credit yourself with his meteoric rise back to number one in 2018 with all the work you did with him. We know it was you, but braingametennis.com, you can get around that and see all of Craig's work. It is unbelievable. And he's the best analyst and strategist in the game. Craig O'Shaughnessy, thank you so much for joining us on Breakpoint Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Bill and Joel, uh, a pleasure to speak with you guys and um, all the best uh, in Melbourne. I hope you guys uh, get freed and as the weather gets better, things get better for you guys down there. Craig O'Shaughnessy joining us there. Remember, check out braingametennis.com. He's absolutely amazing and, yeah, one of the best tennis minds in the world. You'd be silly not to tap into it. But our next guest, we've got a double header today, Joel, is a man that we've had on before. He's uh, he's a two-timer now. His name is Jed Zetzer. He's part of the Aussies Only podcast for the First Serve series with Jake Eames, and he's also the admin of Aussie Tennis Talks on Twitter, at Aussie Tennis Talks. You can follow them. They follow everything that is, uh, that's going on with the Australians on tour. It's a fantastic initiative and uh, something that Jed has done so well for so many years. Jed, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers for the plug, Val. Really appreciate it and very, very keen to be here and get stuck in. It's um it has been a it's been a weird two weeks going straight from um, New York to Rome. But the Aussies in Rome so far, we had um unfortunately John Millman and Alex Demonor had mixed results. Millman going through with a win last night over Jao Sousa in straight sets. But unfortunately for Alex Demonor, he's fallen to Dennis Keffer, uh, Dominic Keffer, sorry, three six six three seven six in the third. So disappointing. Milman 7-5-7-6 over Suso. He's a good clay quarter, so decent win for him. Isla Tomjanovic also out. She fell to Buskova in the first round, 6-3, 6-4. So, um, yeah, a couple of mixed results for the Aussies. But um, start off with Johnny. What do you think of him? And then um, Alex as well. Really disappointing result. Yeah, so I was actually able to watch all three of those matches. Uh, Tomjanovic was actually on Foxtel, which was pretty cool. Mm. Uh, yeah, so... Milman, really good win. He's come from a breakdown in both sets, and particularly that second set, he really dug deep. Sousa, as you mentioned, as you mentioned, is a really good clay court player. So Milman had to find that extra gear, and he was able to. And you know, he's putting together, you know, some really good results over the past, I guess, two to three years now. He's sort of entered that 
next level, I'd like to say. He's becoming very consistent against those types of players. So I thought this was a really impressive performance by Johnny. He played really well, and you know he now goes through to the second round, and I'm looking forward to seeing you know, how far he can go into this tournament because he's in good form. Yeah, he definitely is. And the way he played at the US Open was really unlucky not to beat Francis Tiafo, who I thought really fluked that win over Johnny. He was so good in those uh, in those first three sets, but unfortunately he couldn't get the job done. Rude is a very, very talented player. But Milman will go through to face Diego Schwartzman. So that match has the capabilities to go at least four hours, especially on the clay with minimal <laughs> minimal winners being hit. So it is going to be a very, very long affair. Get the popcorn out and maybe have a lot of coffee if you're going to watch that here in Australia. But Alex Stevenor against Dominic Keffer, really tough result. Um, how did you see that match as compared to what happened in the US Open? Obviously, traveling from New York at the start of the week where he played on, I think it was Tuesday, and then, and then to go in and uh, take on uh, Keffer in, in Rome, diff- completely different surface, being in a bubble, long flight, definitely not easy. How did you see his performance? Was it good or was Keffer just playing really, really well? Uh, to be 100% honest with you, I don't like saying, I don't like using the term choke just because I feel like at that level, it's, you know, there's, I, I don't know if there is such a thing as a choke, but there this is. is a choke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Alex was, you know, he's up. He's taken the first set. Uh, second set, he was pretty unlucky to lose. I thought he played well, but he recovered nicely, and he was up a break in the third. He had a match point. He served for the match, and when he came out and served for the match, you know, it, it looked over. He was playing really well, and then he had this capitulation in that service game. Uh, he got broken, and... I guess his head just dropped from there. And Cook was a really good player. We actually saw him go deep into the US Open last year. So he's been around for about a year now at that level. And he just took advantage of his of his opportunity. And really, I guess he just ran over the demon, which was quite interesting to see. He just, he ran out of legs a little bit at the end there, demon, which is probably uh, due to that, you know, US Open run and change of court. So, I don't think there's a lot to read into here for Demon, as you mentioned, is coming off, you know, a really, really impressive fortnight. And I mean, he'd probably be a little bit tired. So but yeah, I mean, definitely an opportunity gone begging there. Yeah, I actually tend to agree, uh, uh, Jed, when it comes to maybe a little bit of fatigue for, for Demon, especially yeah. of course, given the the way that we know he he plays. Um, do you think as well that you know, maybe for I guess the sort of non non typical tennis fan. Obviously, we consume the sport, we love the sport, but no doubt going into the French Open in say I don't know, I guess mainstream, the public mainstream, people will look at it and say, you know, Alex Diminor made the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open, and, and maybe we'll be looking for a similar result um, coming into Roland Garros. Do you think it's important just to temper expectations a bit with with Demon going into into Roland Garros because of course he is still twenty one as as we know and and has a has, you know has a lot of work left clearly, and it, obviously it is a short turnaround too. Yeah, it, it definitely is because let's let's be honest here. I mean, clay is not the demon's best surface. He prefers mm. hard court. He probably prefers grass. Never gotten past the second round at Roland Garros. So it's going to be interesting how he goes this year. This is probably his best opportunity yet, uh, depending obviously on the draw. But demons. Demon on the clay should be good. If you look at his game style, it suits him. But he just somehow struggles a little bit. And I think he'll be one of those players, as he gains more experience on the tour and as his career progresses, there'll probably be a moment in time where you see him go from being, you know, not that amazing on clay to being really, really solid on clay. And that that time will eventually come because... As he gains more experience, you know, as the years go by, he's going to eventually that that switch that that switch will flick, and he'll become really, really good on clay. So that can happen any time. I'm hoping it happens this year. I mean, if he gets a kind draw, uh, he could, you know, have a really good tournament. So I think it's just about confidence for him as well. We see with Demon, he's he's a bit of a confidence player, isn't he? Yeah, he is, and when yeah. he is confident, he's very hard to beat. But yeah, I do, I do get what you mean. But his game should suit the clay because he's so quick. He gets the balls. He can slide yeah, around on the court. Yeah. But but then you, you've got if you remember back, Leighton Hewitt was um that was his least favorite 
slam. He only made the French Open quarters twice in 01 and 04, and then a couple of fourth rounds here and there where Rafa stopped him. But he never really amounted to much at the French Open. Those quarterfinal losses were straight sets to one Carlos Ferrero and Gaston Gaudio. So, um, yeah, it's it, it's difficult. Like, the Aussies never do well. The one I'm, I am looking forward to seeing on the clay a lot more is Alexi Popperin because he's grown up on the surface as well. So I think he's gonna. Yeah. I reckon he's gonna be really good. It was disappointing not to see him get through qualifying of um of Rome. But how do you see his chances ahead of the um ahead of the French? Because he's had some time off, played the UTS, but is he looking in ominous form? Alexi's a really he's a really odd one because he lifts at Grand Slam level. Yeah. I, I don't think Alexi plays the same level on the tour that he does at Grand Slams. He comes out. And somehow he just finds another gear. It's it's actually unbelievable because his tour record is not very good. He's, you know, been in the qualifying for ATP events for the last 18 months now. And yes, he qualifies, but he often doesn't as well. So he's he hasn't really had a breakthrough on the ATP tour yet. But at Grand Slam level, he's just fantastic. And he we very rarely see him lose in the first round of a slam. And, you know, we saw at the Australian Open, he, I mean, I know Tsunga retired, but well before he retired, Popperin was able to get himself back into that match mm. quite comfortably. So, look, I'm really excited to see how he goes here. He's, he's the one with the X factor, and he's the one who could really go deep, but it's all going to depend on his draw. It's probably the best opportunity for him as the draw isn't going to be as stacked as it usually is. But, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. What do you guys reckon? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm I'm hopeful with him. Um, obviously, been he's been around in Europe as well, which which gives me some some hope too. But um, I wanted to ask you as well, Jed, about um, about the women. We haven't really spoken much about them, but of course, we saw Astra Sharma, Lizette Cabrera, and also Maddie Inglis um, in the first round at, at the US Open. And obviously, with the the rejig sort of uh, entry system that was that was there for for the tournament, they brought home a nice little pay packet. I think sixty one thousand dollars each, which was great for them. Um, going into into Roland Garros, do you see uh, any of the any of the women maybe making a mark on that event? Of course, we saw Isla Tomjanovic in action this morning against Marie Buzkova. Couldn't quite get the job done, but do you see any of the any of the women? Um, I guess maybe making up for the absence of, of Ash Barty in in a, in a Australian point of view. Yeah, absolutely. I think the women. This is going to be very dependent on the draws they get because. The Aussie women, you know, you speak about Sharma, Cabrera, Inglis, that group of girls who are sort of just simmering outside the top 100. If they get a kind draw, they're every chance of competing and every chance of advancing through that draw. We saw at the US Open, it wasn't too kind for them. They received some big seeds. Astra Sharma, though, she was unbelievable at the US Open. She was very stiff not to get through her first round match against really real quality opposition. So I actually think the girls are a chance of advancing. I think they all play like Maddie Inglis had a really good first round at the US Open, but she's come up against the seat. So yeah, they it actually played really well, I thought, at the US Open, but very unlucky with the draws they received. So this is gonna really be dependent on the draw. I think that the women have the capabilities to advance. Uh, really good opportunity for them. So, yeah, this is. I think this is really just going to be dependent on the draw. I think so, and it's going to be interesting to see what does happen at the French Open. But looking uh, back at last week at Istanbul as well, Storm Sanders and Alan Perez also making a, a WTA final. We had them both on the show earlier on in the year. They're great people, and it's great to see them have some success. And, yeah, what did you make of their tournament? They're a really good doubles pair. Yeah. I, I was watching a few of their matches on the stream during the week and they are really good. I mean, I feel like they could do some damage at Grand Slam level in the doubles. I think when the tour is back in full swing and we get some form of normality back, I think you could see them actually establish a really, really strong doubles partnership because it works for them. You know, you've got the lefty, it's it's just it's just a really good pair and they they're a bit of they, they cause a bit of chaos because they Create the unexpected. Ellen Perez is a very, very... She's very good at creating... At keeping her play guessing. She she keeps the opposition guessing because she has so much variety. So 
it really works for them. And I was watching them and they're a team that often, if they're not necessarily the best two players on the court, are still able to get a result, which is really, really interesting. So I'm a massive fan of them and I think that they could definitely go deep. I think so too, and let's hope that they can at the French Open. Coming up next week, plenty of Aussies in action. Might not be some of the figurehead ones, but a lot of the a lot of the ones that we love are going very, very strong. Jordan Thompson, John Millman, Alex Demonor uh, among those, and Alexi Popram will get his first shot at a slam since the Australian Open. So very excited for that. Jed Zetter from the Aussies Only podcast at the First Serve and at Aussie Tennis Talks on Twitter, and you can follow him at Jed Zar on Twitter as well. He's an absolute superstar. Thank you very much for joining us on Breakpoint today, mate. Cheers, guys. Really appreciate it. Loving the show. I know I, I tell you I listen to it all the time, but it's it's really good and really loving the work you guys are doing. So keep it up. It's great. Jed Zetter there, absolute podcasting superstar and the tennis knowledge of, of Albert Einstein. He's absolutely fantastic. I don't know if Einstein knew much about tennis, but he was smart. So let's go with that. <laughs> um, let's go with it. Uh, last night in Rome, we'll go through some of the Rome results before we do get to Benoit of the week. Salvatore Caruso over our favorite tennis, Sandrin 7-6 in the third. Marco Cecchinato. Now, I do want to get... and Cecchinato. I do want to get Tancredi Palmieri on. Because that audio of him a few years ago <laughs> correcting John McEnroe on how to say Cecchinato's name is still one of the greatest sound bites I think I've ever heard in my life. So stay tuned. We will have him at some point. Lorenzo Musetti, the Italian qualifier, has absolutely torched Stan Wawrinka. We spoke a little bit about this with um, with Craig O'Shaughnessy. But 6-love, seven, 7-6 six, over a three-time Grand Slam champion. It's one of the most sumptuous game styles that you'll see from a young player. It was just brilliant, Joel. The highlights were just phenomenal. Like, he was passing him for fun. Yeah, no, they were. I mean, and and, and to get Stan six love as well. I mean, we were talking off air this morning. It's not as though Stan hasn't been playing during this, this shutdown. He's been practicing and he's he's played, uh, of course, he played in Prague in the Challenger. And he won it. Um yeah, and he won it. So I mean, geez, what what a what a what a win for Lorenzo! And that one-handed backhand is is just beautiful. And he produced it against the one-handed backhand master. So yeah. look, he's going to be around for a little while, I think. And just quietly, Val, going going into into post-pandemic life, I tell you what, you would not want to be playing Italy in the Davis Cup because they have got some real depth at the moment, don't they? Yeah, they do. They're, they're unbelievable. Fonini, of course, the fat shamer. Um, Matteo Berrettini, <laughs> uh, Andrea Seppi. Um, Yannick Sinner, Musetti, there, there, there's plenty of them as well. So it, it's fantastic to watch. Federico Coria uh, over Jan Leonard Struff, Sam Query out falling to Pedro Martinez of Spain, Denis Shapovalov continuing his good form. Yoshihito Nishioka through over last week's winner in, where was the tournament last week? In uh, Kitzbühel. He defeated um, Miomir Kecmanovic. And then we've got, who else here? Sorry, my phone's playing funny buggers on me. Andre Rublev threw over Fakundo <laughs> Bagnis. Uh, John Milman threw Milos Ranić through over your mate, Adrian Manorino. Joel Dushan Lajevic over <laughs> Alejandro Davidovich Fokina at 6-4, 6-4 in the women's. Yulia Putintseva threw over Rebecca Peterson, 2-4. Um, Daria Kasatkina over Vera Zvonareva, 6-2, 6-2. Angie Kerber smashed by Katarina Siniakova. 6361. Muka in a big win over Sloane Stevens. 6363. That's a mm. popcorn matchup for the first round. Coco Goff also threw over Ons Jabur. Uh, Arena Camelia Begu. Polona Herzog. Uh, Alexandra Rus. Uh, Marketa Vondrausova. Annette Contevate uh, with a big win over Caroline Garcia. And Svetlana Kuznetsova over ben- uh, Bernarda Pera. 6 3 in the third. So some big results tonight. Rafa and Novak. Berrettini. Uh, Venus Williams and Victoria Azarenka facing off in a big first round, and then Pavlachenkova versus Svitolina as well, and then um, Simona Hallett makes her return to the tour. So some big matches to come tonight. Very, very exciting. But it's time, Joel, for Benoit of the week, and it could very well go to Benoit, but it's not because Benoit, since he's hey, yeah. gone into the bubble, he's had illness, uh, lost six one six love one love down against Chorich, got COVID, caused close contacts to be put in an extra bubble. Got to Rome and accused of tanking, losing 6-2, 6-1 to Yannick Sinner. So typical Benoit, he's done it in his own charming way. But um, who does <laughs> who does uh, the Benoit of the week go to this week? Yeah, so this week, Benoit of the week goes to the DJ at Arthur Ashe Stadium. Now, 
obviously he would have had a pretty important job um, sort of just maybe creating a bit of energy in that stadium. Obviously, it is quite a cavernous venue for tennis. Um, the biggest stadium in tennis, and we, we love it as well, but um, it is quite a big venue uh, for, you know, for a sport like tennis that is played on quite a small space. Um, but the real, the real funny moment that was produced by the DJ was in the, in the breaker in the men's final between team and Zverev when the player, I think it was the, I can't remember if it was the first sit down or the second sit down, but anyway, both players changed ends. They sat down and sure enough, under pressure by Queen starts playing. Now, <laughs> I don't think that given the way that match was going and the fact that both players had really felt the nerves throughout the match at various points, that that would have helped them too much. So the Arthur Ashe Stadium DJ, he gets Ben Lyra of the Week. Yeah, that is absolutely fantastic and could think of no better song for the situation. Brilliantly done by the DJ at the, for the USTA. Uh, Joel, it's been an absolute pleasure as usual looking into your eyes. A day late this week, but for, for good reason because we've had a... A wonderful mm. show, and um, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit in front of, in front of, or on your laptop screen again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it has been good, Val, and um, yeah, look, I'm. Uh, it's great because we've just come off the US Open, and sure enough, next week we'll be talking about the French Open. I know, it's very, very exciting. Can't wait for it. Roland Garros starts next week, so when we join you then, we'll uh, we'll have a, a round or half a round under our belt. So, Joel Frucci, thank you very much. Cheers, Val. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast, Facebook, Breakpoint Podcast. Just search us. We are there. We're on Wooshka. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts as well. Wherever you get your podcasts from, we are there. Val Febo and Joel Frucci joining you every week to chat tennis. Can't wait to bring on Roland Garros in a week's time. See you then.